I'm excited today. We have got an awesome guest, Adam Zarzinski, founder of Addressable. And I'm particularly excited because this idea was kind of surfaced in an earlier Whole Whale podcast. And it turns out when I looked around, I was like, wait a minute, there is an awesome company out there that is sending kind of as a service handwritten letters. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. I don't want to take up too much oxygen here. Adam, how's it going? Hey, great to be here. So, what is addressable how does it work is it just you and like just some volunteers and interns just cranking it out <laughs> in the corner with like you know hand cramps and whatnot not quite it's me and a whole warehouse full of robots that actually hold pens and ballpoint um markers and we write handwritten notes on behalf of charities so our our purpose is to really be the third, fourth, fifth hand of your development team so that you can send those handwritten thank you notes instead of doing them after hours, late at night, after you put your kids to bed, like, like so many development professionals have to do. I love this use of new tech for something that like your parents and your parents' parents would be like, yeah, obviously if you're in sales, you better be writing handwritten letters. And it's an art that has fallen by the wayside, it has sort of been relegated into like, oh yeah, you're talking about direct mail, that's dying. Why on earth did you look at this as an opportunity to innovate and create a company? Yeah, so I was uh, a couple of years ago working for a advertising agency that, that services nonprofits with direct response marketing. And at the time, my father, who's a lifelong font designer and a graphics guy, actually built a drawing robot in his retirement. And one of the things that he realized is it did really realistic human handwriting, um, much better than any of the other kind of real pen or auto pen type direct mail tactics that I'd seen out in the existing print shops that we were using for some of my clients. And I immediately thought, you know, this is, this looks really cool. And I think that this is a tool that development teams could actually use uh, to take off some of the burden of, of automating their stewardship, but also to reach out to key segments of donors that maybe they don't have time to talk to as much as they, they could. Um, there's this sort of group of donors on a lot of uh, donor databases that I call the lost middle. And this is donors that are giving $500, $1,000, $4,000 annually, either in a single gift or in a cumulative basis that don't give enough to get kicked into like a principal giving or a major gift type portfolio at a lot of organizations. But still, they're showing incredible commitment to the organization and likely have a lot of capacity to give more, right? Nobody gives away their last thousand dollars. And so if they're giving that much to an organization, it's a sign of, of a really uh, high level of commitment. And so a lot of these donors, they're just getting the kind of standard relationship treatment that somebody that gives $100 is giving to most nonprofits. Even at large organizations, I've found that this is, is often a struggle for development teams to scale the kind of personalization that they want to for some of these donor segments. And so that's where Addressable really has found um, 
its sweet spot in helping teams, you know, automate that kind of follow-up, send out larger batches of highly personalized mail uh, to, to their donors. Uh, you know, the, the average person only gets one handwritten piece of mail every seven to 10 weeks. And so when people are getting our stuff in the mail, it's, uh, it's really creating this kind of happy moment of joy for them because it, you know, it's, it's something that, that sticks out that doesn't look like another piece of direct mail. I have so many questions, but the first one yeah. is, can you write in Comic Sans? Because that's the only <laughs> letter and font I care about. I think it's you important know, you note that like this, wait a minute in your mind, can I just print a letter in like, a script type of cursive type of font? Like, what is it? Like, are humans so sort of like hyper tuned to the like myriad types of stupid mail that have been sent at this point where they can just smell if it's been printed versus been hit with a pen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, most of us have gotten the sort of variations of, of laser printed script and some of it's better than others, certainly. But uh, the, the truth is that when something is written with a pen, when it shows pressure on the paper, when there's a variation between the characters, it jumps out at them. You know, and, and we've done a lot of, uh, you know, focus groups with our product, brought in people off the street and asked them to compare side by side cards. You know, was this written by a man? Was this written by a woman? And then asking them at the end, you know, was, you know, which of these do you think were written by robots? And, and everybody that we've brought in has been universally floored by that question, unable to distinguish between, you know, something that's been written by, by, you know, robots or written by a human. And I think what's, interesting about this is this is not just sort of pretending to be personal pretending to care about donors we see ourselves as enabling donor and development teams to amplify their voice for donors so that this is simply just an extension of the kind of care and passion that uh, and gratitude that the development teams have for their for their donors because like you mentioned, actually, uh, you know, on your show recently, so many donors give and then never give again. You know, you know, the average being, you know, one in five, or you know, even in some of the highest levels, one in one in four donors coming back, which I think is a real tragedy because of how much work and care and need most organizations are facing right now. Yeah, the I like I like your sort of categorization of the lost middle um, gives a bit of mystique to it and opportunity. You know, the chance of upgrading that there is a diamond in the rough, that there is a potential high net worth individual literally sitting waiting for that type of outreach is very real. In doing this now, that's that's is that the strategy? Can you give us like a for instance as how a nonprofit has like pulled out the lost middle or just blanketed everybody with it? Like, what is the strategy that is employed? And, and frankly, what is more cost effective? Yeah. So typically our clients will take a look at their communication calendar. They'll, be, they'll keep their middle donor group and some of the key touch points throughout the year. They want them to receive their newsletter, their annual report. They want them to receive a handful of maybe their top performing traditional direct mail and, and email touches. And then we'll layer in a, a very personal handwritten appeal that either comes from the executive director, comes from someone on the program team, uh, 
to reach out to them at, at probably two to four times a year. So for instance, we did this for uh, a small food bank in Palm Beach County in May. We mailed 500 of their middle donors. So people that had given, I think over $250, less than $10,000. And we saw a 19% response rate on that small outreach. So they got 90 donations, $700 average gifts. And I think most importantly for me, one of the donors actually wrote the executive director and just let her know how much it mattered to her that she'd taken the time to write a, a personal outreach. And so we know that we're connecting with, with donors in that way. We know that by layering in some of these specific touch points uh, in a very personal way, we can increase uh, donor gift amounts in addition to donor responsiveness and retention. So uh, on average, respondents to our appeals upgrade about 45% of the time over their previous gift. They give a larger amount than they did last time because they feel moved by by the outreach. Since the one year pencil, since last gift kind of time frame? Exactly. Yeah, over the most recent, most recent gift. And so just to get into it, like, I'm just kind of curious, I think in the back of people's yeah. minds, like what, how does like pricing work? Cause there's gotta be a diminishing yeah. return here. But if you're telling me you can get me 45%, why am I stopping at the middle? Why don't I go whole hog, get the whole whale and everybody throw them in the, throw them in the cattle. Certainly. So we find, you know, our cards are about two to $3 per card. So, and we, we use first class postage. So it's a premium product and we want to find that point for your donor file where the you know if we can 4x your response rate that mm -hmm. the gift size makes sense enough to offset the increased cost of the package as opposed to you know if we're doing large volume direct mail we're only 30 40 cents per piece right uh, which is very appropriate for an annual fund you know 75 dollar donor um, and so it really depends on the particular program and the particular uh, sort of unit economics for that donor file where the monetary cutoff uh, would make sense. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. So again, that type of expected response rate that you see is like, you were saying as much as 40% sometimes or 20% oh, sorry, nine, in that range? 19%. Yeah, 40% is probably unrealistic. Um, yeah. And we don't see we don't see 20% every time, but, but typically we see about 4x the response rate of a traditional, traditional. laser printed direct mail. So four, four to 10 times, 10 on, on the high end. Um, and response rates are, you know, a, a function of, of how you segment the file, who you're talking to, those kinds of things. But in general, if we A-B tested with a fully handwritten appeal against a laser printed uh, audience, that'd be the, the, the jump we would expect to see. Mm -hmm. And I like the thinking of the, you know, the medium is the message. And you certainly see that in that woman who wrote back to essentially a robot written letter, which I'm going to park yeah. for now but the medium is the message. Uh, but the message is also the message. What advice for yeah. what is written in there? Because it, it's uniquely different. The type of thing I feel like that would be written by hand then would be typed out. Have you gotten into that? What have you seen Absolutely. work? Right, like, because if I'm writing you a thing, I'm like, 
it's a weird thing that you wrote exactly 850 words because didn't your wrist get tired? Like a shorter, better, yeah. realistic, authentic, like, because I, in, in the minds of a communicator right now, yeah. you're like, yeah, look, I'm going to copy and paste from my direct send and my email and just shove it in there. Then you go to HTTP colon colon. So like no <laughs> one's writing that out, right? Like, so right. what are the things that, you know, you've, you've seen start to reflect and respect the media message game you're playing? Yeah, I think you raise a really important point. And I think this is in part uh, part of the reason why other types of real and auto pen mailers have have not done as well as they could have in the nonprofit space. And and that's exactly what you're saying, that the structure of the content has to be grounded in a narrative of why someone took the time to write a handwritten card at this juncture, why it's important and what they're asking the donor to do in response. And so we absolutely think about that and the kinds of things that work very well in a handwritten card, whether you, you execute it through addressable or you're executing it yourself, you know, in, in house with volunteers or with your team is to make sure that it is one um, grounded in the voice of the author. If someone's sending a handwritten card, it should be personal. When you receive a card from a relative, it's personal. They're either talking about their life, something they experienced, or they're talking to you as the recipient and what matters to you. And so, you know, if we're writing something uh, from an executive director to a donor, we speak as if the executive director is relaying a story of somebody that they just met on the program side of the house or uh, something that matters to them about the cause. If it's an ecological charity, I was just up in the Adirondacks at our reserve this last weekend and I was reminded about why this work is so important. And that's why I'm reaching out to you today mm-hmm. to, to ask if you can be a part of our, you know, fall campaign or, or what have you. Um, you know, we, we do not overproduce our pieces. There's not fancy response devices and, uh, you know, nail merged components that go along with them. We could do that. Certainly we have the technological capability but this is coming from the desk of the development team. This isn't something that was run through a sophisticated mail house. And so simple is better. Shorter is better. 500 characters or less if you can. Mm. Otherwise, it looks kind of like that note that your great aunt sends you where she writes on the back of the card and then turns it over and writes at the top. Um, but you are mail merging like name and unique information in there, right? Sure, There's yeah. some intelligence and, there. And actually, we, can, we can nail merge entire personal copies. So uh, we have a, an API with Salesforce, with uh, a number of other CRM systems. And so our clients can send fully custom handwritten cards on a one-off basis, uh, or we can mail merge in, you know, custom elements into the copy. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to go back to that comment about that letter that you're like aunt would have written uh it's like the entire page long and like you can decipher every fourth word and <laughs> i love you mom my mom like wrote actually a lot of letters uh, uh-huh. on behalf of sort of persuading uh voters in america to vote and yeah. was writing tons of these letters and i was like mom i'm not sure they're going to be able to read them so there's two sides to where I'm going with this. One side is the legibility clearly gets the win for, mm-hmm. yes, a, a machine that can perfectly design out in the single style of font. The other side, though, is 
from that voice and the authenticity and, you know, whether or not over time people will decipher that sensitivity to figuring out, did a robot write this? And if they did find that out, I can't help but feel it would maybe diminish the media message game that you currently are winning on. And so is there, is there, you know, discussion of that? Is there hesitation and like, wait a minute, if people so much as can tell that they were tricked by a robot versus this was a volunteer or an individual person on the staff taking the time to write it, because that's implicitly what's communicated as well. Mm -hmm. That a human being spends seven and a half minutes to scribble this little thing out, fold it, go through the hassle of finding a stamp and doing this. Yeah, I I love that question. It's something that we think about a lot. It's something that I'm particularly concerned about, um, making sure that, yes, as we are driving a marketing tactic and a a medium that is, uh, you know, uses robots to to mimic uh, human handwriting that that we ensure that our, our work is still authentic. And I think that the question does drive at a, a sort of larger uh, challenge and reframing that that we have as fundraisers in the world of artificial intelligence, in which in a lot of areas of our lives, we have digital representations of ourselves that will extend beyond who we are as individuals in the moment. So, uh, you know, if, if I train an artificial intelligence bot to answer the chat on my website, as I would in every situation or respond to, um, you know, questions from, from donors, is that inauthentic given that the projection is that, you know, there is, there is, uh, some intelligence behind it. If I have, you know, a a social presence that's being man, you know, I'm an executive director, but I have an intern managing my social media presence, uh, responding to donors as if it's from the desk of the executive director, is that inauthentic? I don't think so. I think that what this is, is a question of, you know, what is the intent? What is the message and who's ultimately controlling the message? And as long as it's being driven by the author of the content, as long as the the message is designed to inspire and engage and not um, uh, manipulate in a negative fashion, I think that it's consistent with the values and the authenticity of the original author. Uh, I don't know if that that speaks to the the question directly, um, but it, but it's a larger I think uh, dilemma about how we, uh, as people in a digital age with lots of different robotic and machine extensions of ourselves, handle what those extensions are and and to what extent they represent who we are as humans. Certainly, putting on you the larger question of uh, the machines taking over and whether or not they can internalize human emotion and how that's responding. I didn't expect a perfect answer, but it's awesome that you sort of at least consider it and think about it. Yeah. You know, and in short, clearly, if I walk and look at a painting like the one sitting behind me and said that was actually done by a machine, you're like, oh. Or if I tell you that was actually done by my sister, you have just valued that painting in two different ways instantly. And I still think there's a piece of that. What you are doing, though, is incredible because what you're doing is, again, reinventing this older medium of of mail, um, the direct mail piece, and you're achieving added attention. The attention of someone who's actually going to read 500 words and that influences behavior, that attention has become so scarce and commoditized at this point that it's fought for every second, every minute. Mm -hmm. 
And so where I'm going with this is that it tends to be that new tactics, and I'm glad you use that word, new tactics tend to be adopted quite quickly if they're having the types of response rates. And I believe you actually, I deeply believe you on the response rates. What then would you say, and you don't have to fully answer, is the shelf life on this tactic? Like when is my inbox gonna be just jam packed instead of the like, hello, welcome to the neighborhood. Here is your, you know, furniture discount. Go here to your local, you know, like the 50 mailers that the post office sells me out on. Um, when is the percentage of like, wait a minute, that was handwritten. Wait a minute, that was, how many handwritten things are out there, right? Because then, then the alarm bell goes up. So like, you know, you have, you know, jumped on early to, to this. What is your feeling about that trend and what will happen to the tactic over time? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I agree that if we were to continue to execute handwritten direct mail in the way that we have executed laser printed direct mail, uh, that the trend would be towards saturation. The reason I don't think that's going to happen is uh, is because of a primary counter trend that I think is is already happening in the for-profit um, uh, print media space and, and is starting to happen more so now in nonprofit fundraising. And that is thinking about reaching out to donors less in terms of campaigns that are executed on a calendar five, you know, one, four, five, 12, 18 times a year based on when I'm going to drop my direct mail and I'm going to, you know, I have to do at least 5,000 pieces because of my print shop minimums or my setup costs. And at some point as I'm developing this campaign, I'm going to go in and pick an audience that I think should receive it. And then I'm going to mail those people. That to me is a process that is driven primarily by the constraints of laser printed direct mail. We have to mail in batches to get efficiencies and isn't actually responsive to uh, the donor behavior. And so one of the things that we are trying to do at Addressable is to build uh, third-party integrations with as many of the donor systems as possible. So that just like your thank you notes only go out when someone has given a donation to the organization, uh, we can start to do other types of outreach that is programmatic or responsive to donor behavior specifically. Uh, an area where I think there's a big gap right now is uh, in pre-lapsed and, and um, uh, uh, annual gift reminder type outreach. Most organizations do a really fabulous job of thanking donors when they give, either with handwritten or laser printed email. But often we don't think about reaching out to donors before they lapse in their giving. And I know as an analyst, right, and you, people know as fundraisers that as soon as someone becomes 12, 13 months lapsed, they're much harder to bring back into the fold than they are at the ninth, 10th, and 11th month before they do fall into that Liebunk category. So that's one of the areas where we're reaching out to them directly through a triggered handwritten solicitation. Now, that's a very targeted outreach. Uh, so that the better the intelligence around donor behavior comes, the better we eliminate the sort of need to blanket mail everybody the, the counter trend of reduced contacts, but highly personalized contact, I think helps offset the sort of saturation problem that we see with uh, traditional mail. Yeah, so it's hard to tell for an industry-wide when people are gonna catch on, they'll catch on and that'll happen. But for now, also in the microcosm, which I'm glad you touched on is that if you're like, well, wait a minute, we make like, you know, uh, 5X our money every time we do this, keep pressing this money button. Cause we're like sometimes silly little, you know, 
reward monkeys who tap it and keep getting our pellet. And we're like, more pellet, more pellet, like mid more right. money. Like you're clearly saying, guess what? It definitely will exhaust. If they get like a handwritten letter a week, they're going to be like, I bet the executive director doesn't have that much time. Right. They're going to get right. Like there's a point. Totally. There's a point, and there's a point with all mail, right? Uh, and email, right? There is some diminishing of course, return tactics. point. So what um, is that? What is your recommended, uh, you know, daily diet? I would recommend diet, your uh, diet. As far as donor solicitation, um, people don't use this any more than four times a year mm-hmm. for targeted middle toner. Two to three times is fine. Four would be probably max. Uh, I think because we are personal and very similar to types of handwritten uh, correspondence that are already going out for organizations, keeping thank you notes, keeping retention and pre-lapse strategies as evergreen doesn't actually have to conflict with any sort of communication calendar because uh, if you receive the handwritten thank you note the same week you receive the newsletter, who cares? This isn't, uh, you know, again, it's, it's not that marketing calendar mindset. It's, who are the donors that need to be talked to this week with a particular message? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's probably diminishing returns. We're doing some very interesting work right now with with um, major donor acquisition, uh, and so uh, you know that'd be something also I think is a is a potential strategy to employ once maybe twice a year in a very you know refined type of an outreach uh to to acquire high value donors again this is early stage product development for us but um that that'd be the the primary uh saturation. it seems like would, when you're talking about someone mailed more than <laughs> six times probably uh before i, say, no, you know, I love like, you're like oh six i would stop you it's like <laughs> i'm not gonna take your money and you gotta stop this <laughs> Right. Because I think, you know, as a marketer, as somebody who thinks in a donor centric way, right, you know, this is a tactic. There are a lot of other compelling ways to tell your story as an organization. You need to send that newsletter, that impact report. You need to send those those videos via email and text message to your middle and major donors. You know, um, there are a lot of incredible tools out there. Uh, yeah. that, that you don't do through addressable that, that I would want someone to implement before they, you know, overuse one particular tactic in any way. Yeah. So it sounds like these are batch process or are these like on demand rolling? For example, you're talking about prelapse, but prelapse is not like, and everybody is about to prelapse right now. It's, you know, dynamic based on uh, initial donation date. So how, how does that work with your system? Yeah, so it depends on the CRM that a, a client uses, but um, these are API-driven processes, uh, or they're you know uh, individually triggered by by sending us uh, a list of donors that meet a certain criteria. So no, there you can send a single card with addressable. We have a, a web platform that that everyone gets access to, where you can send a handwritten card just like sending an email, or uh, you, you know they can use one of our third-party integrations and set up a a recurring report in Bloomerang or in Salesforce that donors who, you know, meet this criteria, whether it's having given a gift or haven't given a gift in a certain. What is the most time. ridiculous customized flow that just sent one card and you're like, what have you created? <laughs> ah, that's a good one. Um, uh, I, I do know that we we have uh, a client that recently sent his mother a card on our platform. That was that's something that jumped out to me. As far as like an automated flow, um, you know, we most of our clients do fairly standard tactics. You know, they're they're sending 
prelapse strategies. They're sending thank yous. Um, so just for, to be clear, what is prelapse? What does a prelapse strategy look like? A prelapse strategy means a donor is 10 or 11 months out from their most recent gift and they have not given. And so they receive a very urgent focused letter asking them to make a donation. And then usually we pair that with a strategy where we feed those names back to the organization and say, hey, call these people. They just got their card. We want to make sure they're they're on. Oh, so there's like a sort of feedback. Hey, this was sent just so you know. Right. So you get like a little report yeah. card back. Yeah. And, and often we uh, also trigger emails to land as uh, cards are in homes. Checking to see if you got my note is a really common email that will deploy and land you know, the day after our cards are in homes uh, to pair that kind of, you know, uh, 360 touch with a, with a donor. That's a, a really effective prelapse strategy. Um, the, and, and that's with an annual fund type donor. The other space where that can be really effective are organizations that have uh, uh, sustainers that are at risk of lapsing, particularly if you've got a, uh, a sustainer file that is driven by uh, either Canvas or direct response TV type acquisition, you're going to see a lot of churn in months three, months six, uh, particularly if you've got donors that come in with a gift commitment of over $25 or over $50. The third, fourth time that charge hits their credit card and they've now had some distance from that mm. point of acquisition, you're going to see a lot of churn. And those oh, so you can calculate there, it right? based on your drop-off um, yep. probability. Exactly. Yeah. So we would look at you know what's your curve in terms of retention and where's an appropriate pre-lapse strategy there. Now they haven't lapsed in the sense that they haven't given, but they are at risk of lapsing because they're in a high high risk category. Say a high value monthly donor acquired through television outreach. Uh, and those, those donors cost 300 bucks a piece for an organization. So preventing, you know, uh, churn in those files is considerably important. And it also has a, has a huge upside, right? Someone's giving you 50 bucks a month. That's a really important person to keep around. All right. This was beyond fun for me to like dive into. You've like humored me by answering like all of my uh, geeky in the weeds questions. I appreciate it so much. No, I love We're it. about to move into, into rapid fire. Uh, yeah. Before we do, uh, is there any other sort of nuance of the platform that you think we haven't covered that's kind of interesting or any other story that you're like, ah, I kind of wanted to say that. No, I mean, I think you've been a great, uh, a great host in, in terms of asking the right questions. To be questions. clear, I've been a perfect host. An AI couldn't have taken my job. Perfect. Um, <laughs> you, you've gotten 10 whale bucks. Thank you. Exactly. Um, no, that's great. Brilliant. Time for rapid fire. Moving into this, you hopefully can keep your responses to about 30 seconds-ish. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has been using in the past year? I recently started using an app called Clockwise. And uh, one of the things that Clockwise does is it you give it control over your calendar and it can move around internal appointments that you have with your team to create larger blocks of open time in your calendar. It's simple, it's really easy to set up and it has literally given me hours in my day back. I recommend it to anyone. I have no relationship with the company, but I think it's awesome. What tech issues are you currently battling with? I think we're struggling with the diversity of CRMs in the nonprofit space. I think it's one of the things that really holds the sector back. If you think about all of the innovation that happened 
because we really only have two mobile platforms, Android and iOS. Uh, and the, the dominance of single platforms enables a lot of innovation on top of that. I think we have the opposite problem in the nonprofit space with the number of CRMs. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, even organizations that are using Razor's Edge may be using three or four different versions of Razor's Edge. So it's it's challenging to build products and the kind of automation we really want to offer for teams uh, when there's such a diversity of systems out there. And I think that is changing. I think there's consolidation happening. Uh, I think that there are players that are emerging as dominant, uh, but still, I think it's a it's a definite challenge and something that holds the industry back in a big way. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in terms of um, this kind of optimistic schools out for the summer in society when things are finally able to open back up, when we're able to meet with colleagues in person, whenever that may be. But it seems like it's going to be, you know, in, in six or, or eight months. And I'm really excited for the opportunity to get back in front of um, organizations and and nonprofits to me people that work for community based nonprofits are some of the most inspiring people to know to talk to and so I miss being with them and I'm really excited for for what life will be like when we're finally able to be together. Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. Yeah, uh, when I first started addressable I focused a lot on. Uh, keeping my clients happy and solving as many of their problems as I could. Um, and the reason I think that was a mistake is I didn't spend enough time thinking about some of the underlying similarities between these problems and actually designing products and solutions that, that bucketed them into categories. And so I guess the, the, the takeaway there and how I'm always trying to think about things now when I'm approached by a client with a problem is what sort of classification does this problem fall under? Is there a way for us to engineer either the relationship or the interaction or a product so that we can start to solve for this problem either before it comes up or when it comes up in a, in a more direct and um, succinct way? Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I absolutely do. And I'll tell you why. I used to work with a incredible executive director in Ontario. His name is Peter Razaluk, and he runs the Mission Services of London, which is a, a homeless service organization uh, in London, Ontario. Uh, Peter spent 15 years, as soon as he became an executive director, he created a plan to have a five-year financial wind-down fund for the organization should they ever have to go out of business. And his rationale was people in this community depend on us, people that are in need of food and shelter and services depend on us. And so we need a plan if we ever have to go out of business that we will have enough money to transition everything that we do to the other social services in the community. And I thought it was really inspiring, really responsible and um, uh, long-sighted. And I, I think that as long as there's an understanding that organizations fail and that happens uh, and we plan for those, I definitely think nonprofits can, can go out of business. So I'm going to modify this more common hot tub time machine question uh, because I yeah. feel like you answered it with what you learned beginning. So slight modification. Okay. Uh, yeah. You jump in the hot tub time machine back to when you were first looking at this technology that could write letters. 
what is the bizarro universe and bizarro Adam creating with this that is not addressable, but still using this tech? I think that I would do something around uh, voter activation. And uh, uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff that, that is happening with behavioral economics around uh, changing consumer behavior or, or um, citizen behavior in order to achieve compliance with public policy initiatives or getting people to vote or getting people to pay their taxes. It's a hobby of mine, uh, you know, stuff done by, by the nudge unit as kind of profiled by Richard Thaler. So I think that I would have built something designed to nudge people to take actions to improve their lives or comply with, with things that would ultimately help society uh, nice. using handwritten cards. Not yeah. too late. He's got an API. He can just build it on top of you guys. Hey, there you go. That's a good idea. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? I think that we actually need to start saying no to a lot of organizations that approach us wanting to do work with us. Uh, this is something I talked to my partner about today. Um, our product's not for everyone. Uh, the I have realized now, uh, having done this long enough, that a bad partner for your business or organization actually damages you much more than a missed opportunity. And so uh, customers that suck the oxygen out of the room or that uh, want to execute uh, campaigns and, and marketing in a way that is really fundamentally different than our philosophy as a business, I think we need to start saying no to their business more often, to be honest. If I gave you a Harry Potter style wand to wave across the social impact industry, what would it do? It would change the way that nonprofits and social enterprises think about opportunity cost. Uh, the, I think the lack of appreciation of opportunity cost and particularly in how uh, technological tools are rolled out, not, not even just in a self-serving way in terms of ours, but in terms of new CRM systems, other types of software that would actually save time and improve their outcomes. Um, my wand would uh, help people understand that actually the, the biggest cost is missed opportunity and that failing is acceptable, but failing to invest and to grow is actually not acceptable, that that's a bigger threat to us as a sector. How did you get started in the social impact sector? I grew up in a family that really prioritized service. It was a big part of uh, the community I grew up in, the faith community I grew up in. And so from an early age, I was, I was really involved in uh, service and volunteer work. And it's definitely still something that I see as, as a deep vocation for me and helping organizations grow, be better, raise more money, spend less and raise more uh, is is a deep moral imperative for me as a person, not just as a, someone who's trying to grow a company. All right. What advice would you give college grads currently looking to enter the sector? I would say don't focus so much on the particular cause or even sector within social innovation that you want to work in. Look at the tasks that you're going to be doing in the role. Look at the person you're going to be reporting to and what kind of responsibilities they're going to be teaching you. Who's going to coach you? Who's going to invest in you in terms of leadership? Because there's a lot of time in your career to make a considerable impact on specific causes that you care about, but you have to turn yourself into a high impact tool in order to actually make that impact. So I, that was a mistake that I made. I think I, I went directly into wanting to do a particular type of, of nonprofit work without realizing that 
I could have a lot bigger impact if I focused on becoming more effective as a, as a professional first. And finally, what advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not follow? I think that my parents were planners. They, they recommended that I, you know, have a five-year uh, plan and a set of five-year goals. And, and to be honest, it's not something I've ever done. Uh, most of the opportunities that I've followed have really uh, started out rather optimistically. It, it seemed like the right move and, uh, and I went after it. So there you go. That's my manifesto against five-year plans, <laughs> even though writing goals down is good. I, I've heard. Uh, but uh, so far, it's worked out for me. Well, thank you so much. This has uh, been incredible, Adam, from Addressable, and that's addressable.app that you can find them at. And I get the unique sense that uh, this will be one of those podcast episodes that I'm saying, uh, look, we knew him back when uh, and got to talk to this company when it was just getting started. Thank you so much for your time and sharing uh, these tactics with our audience. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be with you, George. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 